We're partway through a series here on the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to proceed in that this morning. We've made our, gotten as far as chapter 9. We're up to chapter 9 and the, uh, the story of the, the healing of the paralytic who was in such a needy state, his, the only way he could get himself to hear Jesus is his friends carried him. It's a picture of weakness, and that's part of the, the meaning of the moment. He saves us from our sins and more. Praise God, Jesus saves us from our sins. The point Matthew, I believe, is wanting to convey to his readers, us included, in this scene, is that he saves us from our sins and more. Let's read the text. It's Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. See, it's a picture of weakness. And when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralytic, notice the how the friends have a role in Christ's power being released into this needy man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. What an affectionate, affirming thing to say. I treasure that. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming because he had declared sins forgiven. Only God can do that. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? You see, it's sins forgiven and more. It's rise and walk. But that you may know, note those words, that you may know. We're going to come back to those four words, very important. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. He did what he was told. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. It was the fear of God came on them. It's like Israel at Sinai. (gasps) They know they're seeing something they, they can't account for. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's see how Matthew plays this scene out in front of us. One thing to note is the lead up to this moment, which we didn't just read. That was the opening verses of Matthew chapter 9. In the lead up to this rise and walk scene... There's something very important, and Matthew sets it there very deliberately. It's two back-to-back miracles, big ones. The calming of the storm, followed by Jesus expelling evil spirits out of, out of two men in the Matthew account. Two things, two scenes where we see Christ's power and authority over things that people have no power and authority over the stormy sea. There's yet another hurricane hitting the southwest U.S. this morning. How many have we had? This last few months we have seen the the destructive power of storms over which mankind has no power. Jesus stands up and the, the artist in that picture has him like this. That's enough. And the storm stops. On the back of that, a second scene 
where he shows his power over things that people can't control, namely evil spirits. He just says, go, and they go, and they go into a herd of nearby pigs. There is almost certainly, I think I would push that further and say there is certainly an echo in the way Matthew plays this out of the greatest moment in the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea. God demonstrates here, it's Christ demonstrating his power over the waters, over the sea, just like at the Red Sea. And on the back of that, an enemy army drowns. Do you like that? Pharaoh's army, and now the demons go into the pigs and the pigs drown. So we're seeing, we're hearing echoes in the background here, something reverberating out of the old covenant. And now God has come in the form of Jesus and he's doing a new exodus. That's the backdrop to the rise and walk moment, and it establishes Jesus as someone with authority over all things, over seen things like the the sea, and over unseen things like demons. He has authority over it all. Now, as we come into the scene of the actual miracle that we just read about, the rise and walk moment, we see that Jesus meets us in our weakness. He saves us from our sins and more. He meets us in our weakness. I appreciated earlier, uh, was it Peter or Will that read from Romans 5, I've forgotten now, Romans 5 verse 6, while we were still weak. And that's the way God works in our hearts through Christ. When We're weak, and our weakness is where he meets us. Moses heard his call from God to go and confront Pharaoh. He says, I can't do that. I'm not a good public speaker. God says, I will be with you. He used Moses in Moses' weakness. God meets us at our point of need. Here's a verse to think about, Isaiah 42.3. Isaiah 42.3 The Savior, when he comes, it's a a messianic prophecy in this verse, he will come for the bruised reed, the bruised reed, and the faintly burning wick. If you feel this morning that you're something of a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick, Matthew has good news for you, namely that Christ comes for the weak and he meets us in our weakness, in the parts of your life you're not good at. And the things you get all insecure about and think, what am I going to do? The places you feel incompetent. Don't worry about that. Don't let that hold you back. He'll meet you there and even work through you despite your weakness. Paul had to learn that. 2 Corinthians 12, I have to boast in my weaknesses. I had this thorn issue and I said, can't you take it away? God says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. Don't run away from your weakness. Find Jesus in the midst of it because he meets us there. Christ saves us from our sins and more. He sets value on us. I love this picture. I have no idea who who painted it. Uh, It's interesting. They have Jesus. Can we go to the next slide? Wonderful. Jesus here. I must say that's something of a rather Western-looking haircut, hairstyle that Jesus has there. And I'm intrigued with the fellow right in the middle of the image, gesturing toward uh, the ceiling. Do you see him there? 
He's got a look of, he's not too sure what he thinks about this. I wonder if the artist is implying that that's the owner of the house. And he's wondering who's going to pay for his roof. But Jesus sets value on the man, on the stretcher. Notice how he speaks to them. He doesn't just say, rise and walk, as precious and powerful as that is. He says something else leading up to that. He says, take heart, my son. Take heart. He calls him my son. That's got affection in it. It's got friendship in it. Friendship in it. It's got affirmation and warmth in it from Christ himself. He sets value on us. I grew up essentially without a dad. I didn't have a man around that was calling me my son. And that was always a bit of a deficit in my experience and character and whatnot. And I remember the day I asked Velma's father for his approval to marry her. I was really nervous. And he just looked at me, he was silent for a moment, and he, he, uh, he just sort of smiled and he said, I'm agreeable. <laughs> and then he followed up with this, he said, welcome to the family, son. I almost melted, you know, particularly out of a background, there's a deficit on the fathership side. Someone called me son. That's what Jesus calls this man. There's an echo here. Another one, going back to the Exodus. God at the burning bush tells Moses, you go and tell that king of Egypt that the people he's enslaving happen to be, this is Exodus 4, verse 22, Exodus 4, 22. Israel, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, is my firstborn son. And now Jesus is bringing that sonship and affection and covenant love to this needy man on this stretcher. Interestingly, just a few verses on in the, in Matthew 9, we won't study it this morning, we'll just refer to it. Another very needy person, the woman that for 12 years had been ceremonially unclean because of an issue of blood. He says to her, he says to this fellow, take heart, my son. He says to her, take heart, daughter. That's Matthew 9, verse 22. Take heart, daughter. The only place in all four Gospels where Jesus refers to someone as daughter is that one. And it's a woman that's ritually unclean. I wonder what she felt in that moment. Twelve years on the outside, as it were. And then the Savior comes and calls her daughter. He sets value on us. Christ saves us from our sins and more. He sets value on us. He, Christ saves us from our sins and more. He declares our sins forgiven. If we go back to Matthew chapter 1, there's the big long genealogy, starts with Abraham, goes through David and all the way up to Jesus, many generations. And on the back of that, God breaks through. He sends an angel to speak to Joseph, this unsuspecting carpenter, minding his own business and betrothed to this uh, virgin Israelite woman named Mary. And God speaks to Joseph. And he says, Mary's going to have this child by the power of the Holy Spirit. You mustn't divorce her. Nothing impure has happened. This is a miracle. She will give birth to this son, and you are to name him Jesus, 
which means Yahweh saves, or simply Savior. And then God, the angel, gives Joseph the reason. You got to, you, you must name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Let's write those words on our brains. He will save us from our sins. That's his mission. That's why God sends him. Now, we're studying this morning a scene where we see that he does that and more, but that's still at the core of everything. He saves us from our sins, knowing we're forgiven, knowing we're forgiven. It takes us all the way back once more to the Old Testament, to the books of Moses, Leviticus 16, verse 30. Leviticus 16, verse 30. Uh, Leviticus 16 is an entire chapter on arguably the most important annual uh, ritual in Israel's experience. That was the Day of Atonement. And of course, if you know the story, there was it was all laid out by Moses, by God to Moses. And the priests would take two goats, one would be slaughtered, and its blood poured over the top of the sacred Ark of the Covenant. The other goat, they would representatively, the priest would confess the sins of the people over the goat, and then the goat was driven out into the wilderness, symbolically, ritually, bearing their guilt away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Its distance is the point. It, the, the goat would carry their guilt and sin away. And when all of this was completed, when the two offerings were done, the two goats, the high priest would stand up over all the people and he would say these words, You are clean before the Lord. Leviticus 16.30 You are clean before the Lord of all your sins. What a statement. But you know what? As powerful and potent as that was back in Leviticus, it was simply a lead-up pointing to the real source of forgiveness, which is what we see right here. The Savior would come, the one whom God said would save us from our sins. And he says to this man, I love this image, leaning down the art of the photographer has it set up beautifully. He's leaning down, there's intimacy, there's warmth, there's affection, there's affirmation, there's encouragement, and you can just imagine in that moment Jesus saying to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure everyone in this room has memories that make you cringe <laughs> of things you've said or things you've done. And you, you believe, you know in your heart somehow, well, that was covered by Christ dying for me, so I'm confident God's dealt with it. When you think about it, when it comes up once more for the thousandth time on your brain screen, you cringe. If you don't have one of those, you can come up after the meeting and talk to me. You can borrow one of mine because I have a goodly, a goodly number of those cringe things, cringe moments, cringe memories. You know what God's answer in us for those memories is? This scene. Your sins are forgiven. Full stop, end of discussion. They're forgiven. Don't look it around anymore. And of course, we know what the people in that room that day maybe didn't know that Jesus was simply activating something verbally that he was going to fulfill by going to the cross and rising again and ascending into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of God and then interceding for us up there. That's his full mission completely. And now it's all in place for us this morning. Our sins 
are forgiven. Full stop, end of discussion. Give your cringe moments to him. That's why he came. He came to save us from our sins, and he declares us forgiven. Christ saves us from our sins and more. He confronts his critics. The opposition, like in Parliament, there's always the opposition, and Jesus had the opposition. And ironically, it came usually from religious leaders. And in this scene, it's the scribes. Their full-time occupation was to make new copies of the scriptures. They didn't have printing presses and photocopiers. It was all done by hand. And of course, in one way, that was a very honorable uh, profession or occupation. It, It made it possible for more people to have copies of the scriptures in their synagogues and so forth. And the scribes were the people tasked with doing that. But they, this group had seemed to have taken on a bit of an attitude that they were God's sheriffs to correct everybody's doctrine. And they would swagger into a meeting and he started correcting you, whatever you had said. And here they are going after Jesus. They, they say, blasphemy, blasphemy. What's he think he's saying? And who does he think he is? Now we said a few minutes ago, that this, the words that you may know, he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he tells the man to rise up. But those words are very important. That you may know. If you go back, you're going to be thinking, wait a minute, are you talking about Matthew this morning or Exodus? Well, it's a little bit of both. In the book of Exodus, from the beginning of the story, where Moses, with the birth of Moses, up to the crossing of the Red Sea, one of the highlights of that scene, in the, that, that segment of Scripture in the Old Testament is the headbutts, the confrontations, the showdowns between Moses and Pharaoh. You keep having these moments. And again and again, guess how many times? Seven. Seven times, count them, the Hebrew number of completeness, seven times Moses says to Pharaoh, that you may know. The same words Jesus uses here. I want to argue that's very deliberate on Jesus' part and on Matthew's part in including it in his account here. Pharaoh, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, Israel's God, and not yours and not your God's. He's going to do this and thus and such that you may know that he is God, that he sets Israel apart for himself, that you may know. That's why he turns the, the, the Nile River into blood. Because it wasn't Pharaoh's river, it was God's river. And he's demonstrating it all, all things belong to him, that you may know. The same phrase reappears in Ezekiel dozens of times, that Israel may know, that the nations may know. And Jesus is bringing that that dynamic or that truth, that potent idea into this moment with religiously motivated critics. And he says that you may know. God has sent me to do something today in order that something else might happen, that you might know something, namely that God has given me authority over all things, the sea, the stormy sea, evil spirits, and now sin and guilt. I have authority from my Father to declare forgiveness that you may know you know there's that pharaoh voice you know where else it lives not just in the pages of history and not just among trumped up you know religious leaders that think they know everything that pharaoh voice lives in my heart and in all of our hearts 
where we doubt Christ's authority, we doubt God's goodness, and God will come along if we hold on to him, and he will demonstrate. He'll say, listen, I'm doing this for you, so you'll know something that you may know. There may be something going on in your life at the moment, and as God orchestrates all things in your life and mine, he's doing it that we might know. Maybe ask the Lord this morning, Lord, what is my that I may know issue in my life right now where you're speaking to me? There's something I don't really see and you're wanting me to see it. Would you help me to see that? Finally, he raises us to new life. Christ saves us from our sins and more. He raises us to new life. He says to the man, Christ says to the man, Rise and walk. Pick up your bed. Go home. Go to where you're meant to be. The bed shouldn't always be carrying you. Today, I'm going to reverse that dependence, and you're going to be carrying it. Rise and walk. Forgiveness, but more than forgiveness. It's the ability to live. The ability to live. Take those words home. The ability to live. To live life. In Scripture, walking is very frequently a metaphor for living. So the prophets charged the people of Israel on multiple occasions of walking according to the ways of the nations, the ways of the Gentiles. And it didn't mean they imitated the way they physically walked. It meant that they lived the way the Gentiles were living, worshiping other gods, engaging in immorality, Paul talks at length, especially in Romans and Galatians. How do we walk? Do we walk according to the sinful nature, the flesh literally it says, or do we walk according to the Spirit? Do we walk by works or do we walk by faith? It's all about how we walk. Walking is living. And Jesus enables this man to begin to walk. He's raising him to new life. This is why, once more, it's important to see the lead-up that Matthew gives us in this scene. Jesus demonstrates his authority over things over which people have no control. Stormy sea, evil spirits. A detail I left out from those scenes is this. They were both life-threatening. The storm, of course, And in Matthew's description of the demon scene in chapter 8, it's interesting because it's a little different than Mark and Luke. We never find out their name is called Legion. There's none of that. But there's one little detail which is very telling, especially paired up against the calming of the sea, and it's this. It says no one could go that way. In other words, in that area where these demonized guys live. No one could go in that area because they were so fierce. So fierce they were. No one could pass that way. They were dangerous. You could get mugged or worse by these people. So the stormy sea and these demonized people, what do they have in common? They're life-threatening. There's something going on there that is destructive. And Jesus, with mere words, he deals with it. The storm stops and the evil spirits come out of these two people and go into the pigs and the pigs go in and drown in the sea just like Pharaoh and his army. This man is up against something life-threatening. He can't walk. And the, the same Savior, the same power that get, enables him to calm the storm and 
get rid of these evil spirits now goes into this man's body, into his muscles, into the nerve endings in his legs and so forth. And he all of a sudden, how long had it been, I wonder, since he had been able to walk? He gets up off the ground, off of this stretcher, and he walks. Jesus is giving him back his life. He's raising him to new life. In conclusion, let me just focus on another little detail Matthew gives us. Picking up his bed. Why does Matthew mention that? It's there for a reason. He didn't have to include that little, not too large detail, but he does. Pick up your bed. Well, I'll suggest this. For however many years or whatever, this guy had had this paralysis he had been dependent on that bed. The only way he could move is if he got some friends to come to his house, bend down, pick up the stretcher, and carry him where he needed to go. That's how he got to this meeting, to this teaching time. He was dependent on it. And when Jesus says, rise up, pick up your bed, he's saying, I've come today to reverse that wrong dependence. You've been dependent on it, and I'm turning that around now. Now it is going to need a ride back to the house, and you're going to carry it. What is it? Well, let me teeny backtrack. He is exchanging his dependence from the bed to Christ's power within him. There's a changeover of reliance, a changeover of dependence. Instead now being dependent on the bed or whatever, he's dependent on the power of the one who calms the storm and drives away evil spirits. That is in him. This morning, there may be a bed you need to pick up and carry home, or a bed you need to pick up and get rid of. What might it be? We're going to return to that in just a moment. Here are some takeaways. Very good. Let's ask the Lord to help us with this this morning. Some takeaways. Do I see Jesus as Lord of all things that lead up to the rise and walk moment? That's there very deliberately. Do I see that? And are there places in life where I'm thinking, I'm not sure Jesus really does have authority over that? Well, this morning I think the Lord wants to speak to us and assure us, yes, indeed, he does. Do I realize he meets me in my weakness. I know it says in one of the Psalms, forget which one, be strong and take courage. Okay, fair enough. I agree with that. I embrace that. Wonderful. There's also times to be weak. (laughs) Paul said, I boast in my weakness because God showed me that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So in one sense, don't misunderstand this. I don't want us to be forever weak and neither does God. Go ahead and be weak and find, and trust Jesus to meet you there and then turn the weakness into strength. He meets us in our weakness. Do I realize that he calls me son or daughter? That reply, that implies actual affection, personal affection. Jesus himself has that for each of us this morning. You think you're unclean? It doesn't seem to bother him. He tells an unclean person that she's his daughter. Do I realize I'm forgiven? He deals with our cringe memories and takes them away and says something even the high priest couldn't say. Now because of me, you're forgiven forever. Will I let him, 
confront Pharaoh's voice in my own mind. When I doubt something, I doubt the authority of God, and he'll say to me, or say to the whole church, that you may know, that you may know. Now we have that little question about the bed on the, on the screen here, and I've left a blank. Let's take a half a minute, 30 seconds. Each of us ask the Holy Spirit what you need, what you, we need, I need, to write into that blank. Here's some of mine. Perfectionism. Facebook. The approval of others. Caffeine. I don't know if I'm touching any source points this, this morning. Find your own and just write it in there. Something you realize, you know, in much of the time I'm more dependent on that than I am on Christ's power within me. Take half a minute. Jesus, we praise you this morning because of what we see in this scene. You came to forgive sins. You came to save us from our sins and more. You're Lord of heaven and earth, of earth and sea, stormy seas, evil spirits, the physical realm, the spiritual realm, whatever. All of it bows to you. And Lord, this morning we bow. And if there's places in my heart that don't want to bow, I ask you to help me so they will bow because you're Lord of all things. We thank you. You use us on our weakness. You meet us in our weakness. Thank you for your affection for us that you call us a son or daughter. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, in these areas where there's a false dependence going on, something other than you, we repent of that this morning. We say, Lord, from now on, I want to depend and rely on your power in me, the same power that got that man up off that stretcher that day. We ask all this for your honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.